You can have a seat as you join with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we look to you now. We heard this morning in our scriptural assurance of pardon that Jesus was made like us in every way and that he himself suffered and that because of that, he's able to help us in our temptation and in our need. And we've just sung now that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He's familiar with grieving, but in his suffering, we find life and forgiveness and true freedom. Because he has gone before us in death and resurrection, so too will we follow him, being forgiven of our sins and made like him. And so we look to Jesus as our only hope. And God, this morning, as we open up our Bibles and begin a new preaching series in the Gospel of Luke, help us in our hearts to delight in Jesus Christ to rejoice in him. Help us to find our only and true satisfaction in him. Help us to truly see him for who he is, that you might be glorified and that we might be made content and happy in him. God, may we at Peace Bible Church always be a church that proclaims Jesus in all we do, from the songs we sing to the prayers we pray to the sermons we preach to the way that we live our lives toward one another and toward our world. God, help us to be instruments of peace as we seek to not just keep Jesus inside the boundaries of our church, but to bring him into all dark places that his light might shine brilliantly there. God, this morning is our first meeting as a church in the month of November. And God, we thank you for carrying us through our first month of meeting together. Thank you for how you have begun to knit us together as a community of believers. Thank you for how friendships are being formed and even how difficulties are being shared with one another. We thank you for how people are chipping in willingly to help serve. And God, as we move toward beginning more ministry efforts and with uh, community groups forming on the horizon and all that sort of thing, help us to truly know each other so that we might bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Even as we share in meals together after our service, help those meals to be places of relationship building and true fellowship. God, would we as a church live in the unity and love that you have given to us. May we each see ourselves as you see us, as righteous in Christ and without sin. Help us to be patient and kind toward one another, especially toward our brothers and sisters whom you have redeemed. Help us to be welcoming to all whom you bring our way. And God, now let us receive your word with open hearts and minds, with a desire to worship Christ and to do your will. Send us your Holy Spirit that we might do these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome again to Peace Bible Church. My name is Casey. If I haven't met you yet, I am the pastor here at this church. And last week, we tried something a little different. And to the screen to my left, you will see it again on the bottom there. I say, if you have any questions or comments that arise during this sermon or about the text that we're preaching, we would love for you to text those in to us to that number right there, 971-414-0290. And what we're working on doing is recording a podcast during the week. It will go back and answer these questions. And so there's a way to, to interact there. So if anything comes up this morning in Luke 1, 1 through 4, that you have ex- extra questions about or I say something, you're always welcome to talk to me afterward. Uh, but you can also send them here and maybe your question and our answer to that will bless somebody else as well. Last week we tried this for the first time and I was thrilled because we got a question. <laughs> which allowed us to record the podcast. Anybody listen to it? Okay, a few of you, good. Uh, good, and so 
I think we can get more than one question this week, and we can have an even better podcast. But this morning, we are beginning a new preaching series in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's book is one of four Gospels, of course, in the New Testament, and the Gospels are the books that are about Jesus. And they're not just stories, although they have many stories, and they're not just biographies, although they do tell about the life of a person, that being Jesus. But at their heart, the Gospels are proclamations of Jesus Christ. They tell the good news. They're literary ways of holding Jesus up to the world and saying, look at him. Look at who he is. Look at what he has done. And I love preaching the Gospels and reading the Gospels. And for a long time, I wasn't sure what we would do as our first main book preaching series here at Peace Bible Church, but I knew it would be from one of the Gospels. And this isn't just a pet project, like I'm going to do this because I like to do this. It's because our first core value as a church is proclaiming Christ. And though we can and should, and I think we even have been uh, proclaiming Christ from all parts of Scripture, there is a directness in doing it from the Gospels that I love to participate in. And I've often said that I don't want anyone to ever walk away from one of our church services at Peace Bible Church without having gotten the impression that we were about Jesus here. So you went to that church, what was that about? Maybe they don't remember hardly anything, but I'm like, I don't know, there was something about Jesus. That would be a win, right? We want to make sure we always are about Jesus at this church, and so the gospel seemed a good place to do that. We also want this church to be a welcoming and inviting place for all people, including unchurched people, dechurched people. We want anybody to be able to come to hear the gospel, to be invited to be a follower of Jesus Christ, whether that's for the first time or if that's returning to him after a season of waywardness. And it's a good thing to invite them to come and meet Jesus and to talk about Jesus. Because you'll probably find in talking to people about the Christian faith that people have a lot of opinions about Christianity. Some are good and some are bad. But what you might also find is that people's opinions about Jesus are often quite different than their opinions about Christianity. And most of the time, they're more positive in how they view Jesus than maybe how they view Christianity. About 15 years ago, an author named Dan Kimball wrote a book called They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. I think that that title sums up very well, I mean, it sums up what he found in talking to young people, uh, 20 and 30-somethings in those days, but I think that it still holds up, that that distinction is true for a lot of people. Their impression of Jesus is positive, even if their impression of Christianity or the church or Christians or religion in general is not. And sometimes we can understand why that has been. As Jesus' followers, we haven't always done the best job of being like him. But I think it's a good opportunity to connect people, to talk about Jesus. What do people think about him? Where do they get their beliefs about him? And then you can invite them in, whether in personal conversation or inviting them to church, to look at the source material, the material found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And you might know in those four books, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are quite similar in some ways. They include a lot of the same accounts, sometimes down to the exact same wording in spots. And so it's possible that some of these Gospels used other Gospels as sources for what they were writing. Luke acknowledges this possibility at the beginning of his book, which we'll see this morning. John, of course, is a totally different animal with a bunch of his own stories that aren't included in the other three and his own unique emphasis. But... 
even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in some respects, they each have a very different feel. Matthew leans heavily into Jesus's, uh, his speeches and his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, a lot of things that would speak well to Jewish people. Mark leans heavily into Jesus's actions and his role as a servant. And Luke provides us with a more detailed gospel, probably more meticulously researched than the other gospels. And he really emphasizes Jesus being the savior of all people of everybody, all types, all nations, all economic classes, even the outcasts, the unwanted, the poor, and in fact, especially the outcasts, the unwanted, and the poor. And so Jews and Gentiles both, everyone is invited to come and follow Jesus, and that's made very clear in Luke's gospel. And this makes sense because the earliest traditions tell us that a man named Luke was the author of this gospel as well as the writer of the book of Acts. And you see in the book of Acts a lot of times where he shifts into saying, we did this, we did this, we did this. He was a companion of the apostle Paul. And although Paul was a Jewish man, Paul focused his ministry on the non-Jewish or Gentile people of the world. And Luke himself was a Gentile. He was not a Jewish person. We know this because Paul identifies him in Colossians 4, verses 10 through 14. And in that passage, Paul first lists like these three other guys, and he says, these are the only Jewish workers with me. The only ones of the circumcision that are with me are these three guys. And then he lists some other guys after that, including one that he calls Luke, the beloved physician. And he also mentions Luke in Philemon and 2 Timothy. But we see that Luke was a Gentile, that is, that he wasn't Jewish, and that he was a doctor or a physician. Some have pointed out that Luke's gospel seems to have a bit more emphasis on the medical side of things. It uses more medical terminology than the others, and I don't know if this is the case, but it could be. But Luke writes his gospel, and he wasn't the first person to write about Jesus. He almost certainly wrote after Matthew, and he possibly wrote after Mark as well. Uh, Most scholars will tell you he definitely did. But I have recently, personally, this is a side point, but I've joined the ranks of the rare weirdos who lean toward the Gospels having been written in the order of Matthew, Luke, and then Mark. And nobody else thinks that except me. But I think that. And I'm not too insistent or passionate about it. It doesn't matter what order the Gospels were written in. But Luke was not first. He acknowledges other sources. That's because Luke himself was not an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. So he talked to the people who were. And he details all of this in the first four verses of his book, which is a unique way of starting the gospel. He starts it with a dedication. And all the gospels begin in different ways. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Mark begins with a prophecy from Isaiah. John begins with this theological prologue that's built out of Genesis 1. And Luke Luke begins in what was a very customary way for an educated Greek writer to begin his work. This would have brought reassurance to educated Greek readers as they read this, that this is an author who knows what he's doing. He knows his stuff. This isn't some slapped-together, hokey, like, backwoods thing. This is a legitimate, respectable document. It's intended to be read widely by all people, and Luke intends for this to be seen as real, legitimate, respected history. And so let's read this together, and then we will talk about it. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken..." to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God. In verse 1 of our passage, Luke acknowledges here that he's not the first person to write about Jesus. In fact, he says many have undertaken this task. And that word he used for undertaken means to set your hands to. It's describing manual labor. It's describing a difficult job. He's saying that others have written before about Jesus and they've done hard work. They've done good work. And this almost certainly describes Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and probably also a number of other people that chose to write about Jesus but whose works were not inspired in the same way and so they were not preserved in the same way and included in the New Testament scriptures in the same way. But what Luke is saying here is that others have done good work in this area and he intends to build on it in writing about Jesus in his own uh, unique way. But I find his wording here fascinating in verse 1 because he speaks of these accounts. He's clearly talking about others who have written about Jesus and he describes these works. Look at the very end of verse 1. He describes them as the things that have been accomplished among us things that have been accomplished among us. But he makes it clear that he was not an eyewitness of Jesus. And yet, you know, he, yeah, he distinguishes himself from the group of eyewitnesses. And yet, he talks about Jesus's life and the things that Jesus did as what happened among us. And that word us could refer to humanity in a general sense, but I think he's talking there about Christians. He said, I want to tell you about the things that have happened among us. And maybe he's just gearing up for part two when he writes the book of Acts, but I don't think so. I think he's saying here, this narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he's saying that the events of Jesus's life are not just past history, but they are present reality. Because Jesus is not just past history, he is himself a present reality. The same Jesus who walked the earth, who did miracles, who taught the will of God, who gave himself as a sacrifice for sins, is still at work among the people of God, among the true church. And so there's a real sense in which Luke can say that the events of Jesus' life occurred alongside his own life, even though he wasn't there to see them happen. Daryl Bach, a commentator on Luke, he says the language here can include a reference to a group that was not present at the original events. Past and present believers united by these events share in their significance. Luke says, I'm going to tell you about what Jesus did in his life, and these are things that are happening among us right now in the church. This has happened to me. He says, you want to know what's happened to me, says Luke? You need to meet Jesus. You will see in his healing, his teaching, his love, the same things that he did for me, that he does for me now, and that he does for all of us who are in Christ, who are Christians. You want to know why we are the way we are. This is why we are the way we are, because we know Jesus. So you see, when we talk about Jesus, and you may have noticed this, we talk about Jesus differently than we do any other historical figure, or at least we should talk about Jesus differently than we do any other historical figure. It is not out of the ordinary to hear the question asked, who is Jesus? 
And maybe you've heard that, maybe you have asked that. Who is Jesus? It is a very good question, but it is unique to Jesus as a historical figure. You don't hear people ask, who is Napoleon Bonaparte? Who is Billy the Kid? Who is Socrates? Who is Sigmund Freud? Who is Genghis Khan? Who is Joan of Arc? Who is Abraham Lincoln? Who is Ludwig von Beethoven, and yes, those are the eight historical figures who were picked up in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. But my point is we don't talk about any other historical figure in the present sense because they are not present. They are dead, but Jesus is not dead. Jesus is very much alive, and he continues to be known and loved by people all over the world, in all places, and at all times, as he draws people to himself and into fellowship with him, to know his love, his forgiveness, his salvation. And so here we are, even today, we can open up any of the Gospels, read of what Jesus did in real time and space and history 2,000 years ago, well before us, half a world away, and still say he has done these things among us. He is doing these things among us. A hundred years ago, in 1923, a man named J. Gresham Machen wrote one of the most important books of the 20th century called Christianity and Liberalism, a book that you can read today and it's just shockingly relevant. It sounds like it was written yesterday. Highly recommended. In this book, he contradicts the teachers of his day and, of course, of ours and in all ages who want to make Jesus merely a teacher of good morals, right? but not supernatural not our Lord. Our example, sure, but not our Savior, not a substitute for our sins. And Machen says, no, we must accept the Jesus of the Scriptures. And I included this quote in your bulletin. He wrote this. He said, the Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern Reconstruction in that he is real. He's not a manufactured figure suitable as a point of support for ethical maxims, but a genuine person whom a man can love. Men have loved him throughout all the Christian centuries, and the strange thing is that despite all the efforts to remove him from the pages of history, there are those who love him still. And why do we love him? Because he's real, he's active, he's alive, and we know him. So Jesus was a real person. And Jesus continues to be a real living person. Verse 2 in our passage emphasizes the historical reality of Jesus. Having said in verse 1 that there were other writings about Jesus, Luke emphasizes here that they were good writings, reliable writings. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Being an eyewitness or having had direct connection to an eyewitness was considered an essential element of reliable history in the Hellenistic world. If you didn't have eyewitness confirmation, you didn't have real history. And Luke says here, I have it. I have eyewitness confirmation. Even if I wasn't, I have talked to many who were. Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, he says. Probably not two distinct groups there. But he certainly has, like, who's he talking about there? He has the apostles in mind, I'm sure, you know, who had preached the word of God, who had seen Jesus, who had told about him, and they relayed the message of Christ. But I think it's almost certain that Luke spoke with other eyewitnesses as well. He has details in his gospel that the other gospel writers do not. It's Luke, of course, who writes so compellingly and memorably about the birth of Christ and the events surrounding it. It's Luke's gospel from which we read 
at Christmas. And we'll be right in the heart of that this year in December. That'll be good. It's Luke's gospel that Linus recites in a Charlie Brown Christmas. It's Luke's gospel that talks about the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, about the manger, about the shepherds and the angels, all those things we associate with Christmas. We wouldn't have them without Luke's gospel. And why does Luke have these? I would say it would appear that Luke had spoken with Jesus's mother about these things. Luke 2.19, he gives this little note after telling about the birth of Jesus and all that happened around it. He says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And how did he know that? I think he wrote that verse because he witnessed that verse. I think he sat down and spoke with Mary and he said, tell me about the night that Jesus was born. And I think she had to stop from time to time to absorb the information, to think about it, to treasure it. And Luke saw her doing it. And so you have this man, Luke, who is a good historian who did his work. And the accounts in his gospel are based on good history, eyewitness testimonies, reliable stories passed down, that sort of thing. Luke's gospel is part of the cloud of witnesses that make Jesus Christ one of the best attested ancient historical figures that we have record of. There are people that will tell you there's actually no historical record of Jesus existing. It's ludicrous. There's abundant record and most especially in the Gospels, which were written by eyewitnesses or from talking to eyewitnesses. But let's go to verse 3. In verse 3, Luke gets to his motivation for writing his Gospel. And I love this part because it's so simple. He said in verse 1, a bunch of other people had written about Jesus. In verse 2, that he had received a lot of good and reliable eyewitness info. And so in verse 3, what does he do with that info? He decides to write his own gospel, his own version of the life of Jesus. And why did he do it? Look at the explanation. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what's the first thing he says? I wrote this book, why? Because I wanted to. Seemed like a good idea, and so I did it. I'd learned a lot about Jesus. Seemed like it'd be a good thing for me to write, so I wrote. And so a brief side point here on decision-making and the will of God. How do you decide what to do for the Lord when there are options placed in front of you? What things should you be doing? I like the model that Luke demonstrates here. He's shown that he's following Jesus paying attention to everything he can. He's learning all he can about Jesus and from Jesus. And then he thought it would be a good idea, which probably means it was a good fit for his skill set and his passion. We see that he's a very good writer. His Greek's some of the most eloquent in all the New Testament. So it's a good fit for his knowledge, for his skill set, for his passions. And so he had the opportunity to do it. So why not do it? And I love this. Because here he is writing one of the most influential pieces of literature in the entire history of the world. Here he is writing one of the documents that God has used more than any other. Here he is writing literally divinely inspired scripture, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what made him do it? It seemed like a good idea, and so I did it. Sometimes we complicate things too much. But if we are following the Lord living for him, in tune with his Holy Spirit, attentive to his word. When faced with decisions, one of the best things we can ask is, do we want to do this? I've had people come to me for advice sometimes as a pastor. What should I do here? I said, what do you want to do? 
do you want to do this? That's a good question. It's not everything, but it's part of the answer. Luke wanted to write about Jesus. It seemed good to him, and so he did. Not everything has to be complex. Not everything has to be magical. Not everything has to be a word from on high. It's as St. Augustine said, love and do what you will. Are you truly operating from a place of love for God and for others? Are you informed by his word? Are you led by his spirit? Is the situation before you not a clear-cut violation of biblical principles one way or the other? Is it not terribly destructive one way or the other, or selfish or whatever? Then do what you want to do, right, within reason, as a follower of Christ. Luke wanted to write, and so he wrote, and so here we are. That's a good, good thing. But Luke did not just sit down. When he chose to write, he didn't just sit down and go with some, you know, stream of consciousness, whatever came to mind. We'll just kind of run with this and see how it goes. He says there that he followed all things closely for some time past. That probably means written sources, people had written about Jesus. It probably means people's stories, people who had met Jesus and seen him and talked to him. He read everything he could get his hands on. He talked to every person he could round up. He followed this all closely. That means with care and with accuracy. And then he says, I wrote an orderly account. Orderly account. This doesn't necessarily mean chronological. Though Luke's generally chronological, he's not in in certain spots. He's not always that way. It means that he wrote with purpose. It means that he ordered his story in a way that it would make sense. It means that he wrote to persuade others about Jesus, to come to believe in him, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is who the church says he is. And Luke's structure, as we enter into Luke's book, you should know there's three basic main sections of Luke. It starts with like the birth and all that. That's kind of its own thing. But really like chapters one through nine, it's like introducing Jesus. Here he is, put him on the scene. And Jesus as an adult male, we get to chapter three, he comes on the scene in Galilee, up in the north of Israel. He does miracles. He ministers the word of God. And so chapters one through nine really cover his birth up through his ministry in Galilee. It's like presenting Jesus. Here he is. Look at him. Come see who he is. And then from the second part of chapter 9 up through chapter 19, Jesus is shown traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So he's on his way now, traveling south from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And on the way, he's calling others to come with him. Say, hey, come with me. Be my disciples. Follow me, and I will explain to you what this is about. So the middle part of the book, he's traveling and inviting others to travel with him, to live as his disciples. And then from chapters 19 through the end of the book in 24... That's when Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and it describes his final week as he teaches and uh, makes a lot of people mad and then ends up dying and raising again from the dead. And so just a a brief word here, our plan here. Luke is a very long book. You're going to jump into like the longest book of the New Testament as your first sermon series here. And say, yeah, but we're going to split it up a bit. My plan is I'm hoping this school year that we'll kind of work through Luke 1 through 9, that first main section, we'll probably take a break for a while, preach something else. We'll come back, hopefully next fall, and we'll preach next year that middle section of Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Then we'll probably break for a little bit after that, preach something else, and then we'll come back at some other point in the future, Lord willing, and preach Luke 19 through 24. So that's the plan. So it'll take us a while to work through Luke's purposeful telling of the story of Jesus, but we want to pay close attention to it. But Luke says, I wrote this orderly account, And then he says in verse 3 that he wrote it for a person, a man named Theophilus. 
And you could spend a lot of time here. You could look it all up if you're interested on all the fan theories of who Theophilus was. It's kind of a mysterious figure. He's only mentioned here and in Acts 1. He's just a guy who gets books dedicated to him, and he never shows up in the story of the books. But we won't talk about all those theories. But because Luke called him most excellent Theophilus, and most excellent there, not just in like the Bill and Ted sense, but like the high official, like your excellency, this tells us that he was somebody important. He was an important figure. That's what we can know about him. He may have been a government official. He may have been involved in the Apostle Paul's trial. Some think that Luke's writing for that purpose. The most common guess, I think, is that he was probably the benefactor of Luke's work. That he was a guy who had some resources, so he financed the work, and he allowed it to be published and distributed. He was the guy that made all of this happen. That seems likely, but nobody really knows. But he does seem to have been a real person. Theophilus was a common name. It shows that he was probably a Gentile. That word means friend of God or one loved by God. That's what Theophilus means. And so some people have actually speculated, like, was he not even a person? Did Luke just make up a name to say, like, this is for anyone who would love God? And that's possible. We don't really know. But I think he was probably a real person. It was a real name that you see in the historical record and all that sort of stuff. But it's interesting, though, that people have speculated all kinds of things about who this man could have been. Some have speculated that he was an unbeliever who was hostile to Christianity, and Luke is trying to persuade him to be more friendly toward it. Some have thought that he was an unbeliever. He's not yet a Christian, but he was interested in Christianity and wanted to know more about it. So Luke is teaching him. Some that thought he was a believer who was a little bit confused and needed help understanding more of what Jesus, who he was and what he had taught. Some have thought he was a strong believer who just needed some direction and some resourcing for his own life and ministry. And so you see the whole spectrum there, from a hostile unbeliever to a mature believer. People have thought at different points, like he could have been any of these things, anywhere along the spectrum. And ultimately, we won't ever know who he was, though again, I do think he was a real person. But I think it's interesting that the way Luke wrote him and the way the Holy Spirit decided to inspire this and leave it in the Bible is to do it in such a way that he could have been almost anybody. And maybe that's the point. I love what Michael Card says in his biblical imagination commentary. He runs through some of the options for who he could have been, and then he writes this. He says, So finally, we can never be sure of the identity of the mysterious Theophilus. But that is not, strictly speaking, true either. He is you. He is me. For we have received some initial instruction on Jesus' life and ministry. We need to know with more certainty the truth of what we have heard. And you would not be holding Luke's book in your hands if you weren't in some sense a lover of God, the meaning of his name, or at least someone who longed to become one. And so I like that. And it takes us to verse 4. Whoever Theophilus was, we will never know with certainty. But why Luke dedicated his book to him, what Luke wanted this man to get out of reading it, that we can know. Look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we know that Theophilus, whoever he was, knew something about Jesus, but that he was in position now to learn more. And I know there's not a person among us in this room to whom that description does not apply. Everyone here, you know something about Jesus. Even the littlest kids here, you know something about Jesus, but you can always learn more. 
And kids, you'll probably get to a point where you think, like, I've heard all the stories about Jesus. I know all the Sunday school stories. I need to move on to more things. No, there's always more to learn about Jesus. He's like an endless well you can always draw water from. He's a friend you can always learn more about. And that's true of all of us. We know something about Jesus, but we can and should grow in our knowledge of him. But look at the words Luke uses here. So that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Certainty about Jesus. Certainty. Is it possible to have certainty about Jesus? I want to think about what this might mean. There's two Greek words here that get translated as like have certainty or know with certainty. And one of them is barely ever used in the New Testament. The other word for knowing here is very common. And Luke uses the word again regarding Jesus. So the same word he uses in 1-4, that he wants Theophilus to know Jesus with certainty, he uses this again at the very end of his book. In chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke, in Luke 24-16, if you remember the story, the resurrected Jesus meets two of his disciples walking along a road to a city called Emmaus, and Luke writes this. He says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. These are men who had known Jesus in life, but for whatever reason, as they were walking with him now, as Jesus was resurrected and walking and talking with him, they didn't realize who he was. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That word recognized there, the same Greek word as having certainty in Luke 1.4. Okay? And then later in Luke 24, Luke comes back and uses this word again. In Luke 24.31, after that resurrected Christ has spoken with them, Uh, as they walked along the road, and after he interpreted all the scriptures to them, and they saw how all the Bible had been pointing to Jesus, then they invite this man, and they say, hey, come on, like, stay with us. Why don't you have a meal with us? And then it says that Jesus broke bread and blessed it, and he gave it to them, and then Luke 24, 31 says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. They realized, this is the same guy. This is Jesus, and then he just bails. He's out of there. They recognize. Same word as in Luke 1. And so you compare that. Luke bookends his, his book with this word. He says, Theophilus, I want you to know with certainty this Jesus. And in turn, this is, this is his desire for every reader of his book. It's that we would see Jesus for who he is. That we would see him as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The one to whom the whole storyline of scripture points. That you would see him as the one who died for your sins though he was entirely righteous. That you would see him as your loving Savior and as your sovereign Lord. That you would see him as the only way to heaven, as the only way that God and man can be reconciled. That you would see him as fully God and fully man. That you would see him as the Christ child born of a virgin, but also as the strong man who was tempted by the devil but overcame it. As the wise teacher, as the good friend, as the Lord of all nature, as the mighty healer, as the defender of the weak and the outcast, as the suffering servant, as the man upon the cross as one who was dead in the grave, as one who rose from the grave to triumph over sin and death, and as one who ascended to heaven, where he intercedes for us as our high priest, and from where he promises to return to take us back to him. That's how Luke wants you to see Jesus, to have certainty that he was who he said that he was, that he is who he says that he is. And if we are left with uncertainty about Jesus, it's owing to our own 
weakness, and frailty. It's not owing to any lack of clarity in Jesus. You can see him in the scriptures for who he truly is. You can grow in that. And as we move our way through Luke's gospel, you can grow in your level of certainty about Jesus. But to do so, you have to stick with him. You've got to keep looking to Jesus. Now, as a pastor, I have opportunity from time to time to talk with people who are having doubts about their faith or who are discouraged in their faith, who are not sure what to think. They're not sure if they want to even stick with Christianity or whatever. And those are always hard to know how to navigate. But what I always try to do, and this is what you should always try to do, I think, if you have these conversations with friends and family, is to point them back to Jesus. People have concerns. You say, I get that. I get it. But don't go away from Jesus. Don't do it. Keep looking to him. There's nobody else like Jesus. Nobody else. A stark reminder of this in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. In this book, he has a fascinating interview with a man named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton had become a Christian as a young man in 1936. He was 21 years old, and he became a Christian, and shortly after that became an evangelist and was very passionate about evangelism and sharing the gospel. In 1945, he actually met Billy Graham, and they became close friends, and they worked together in their ministries, even roomed together. But beginning in the late 1940s and into the 1950s, doubts started to take hold of him. And he entered into Princeton Seminary, and that didn't help. That was where J. Gresham Machen was writing about, that they weren't teaching about Jesus anymore. They're teaching a different Jesus. So his doubts grow. They begin to take hold of him. By 1957, 42 years old, he no longer considered himself a Christian. He said, I can only declare myself now agnostic. And this is what he would remain. And he began to write, you know, about this, rather than being an evangelist for Christ. But near the end of the 20th century, Lee Strobel had a chance to sit down with him. He was now old. He was in his 80s. He was battling Alzheimer's, but he was still quite capable in conversation. And Lee Strobel sat and interviewed him about his deconversion. And I want to read this in full. It's a fascinating passage. Strobel recounted the end of their conversation. So they talked about a bunch of things. And they come to the end, and they start, they're talking about Jesus again. And Strobel writes this. He says, and how do you assess this Jesus? says, it seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What can one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? Strobel says, I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Templeton said, well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, 
Yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is, is Jesus. Uh, but no, he said slowly, he's the most... He stopped and then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. So that's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and he looked downward, raising his left hand, to shield his face from me, and his shoulders bobbed as he wept. And Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell that it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. And after a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. So I want you to see, as this man did, as Charles Templeton did, that Jesus was utterly unique in human history. That he was, without doubt, the greatest person who has ever lived. But he was, and he is, so much more than that. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Savior of all who come to faith in him. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess these things. But now, Jesus calls all people to be his followers, to set aside our confidence in ourselves, our confidence in our own righteousness, in our own goodness, to admit that we have no goodness to offer, but that he has abundant goodness. He didn't just become the greatest person for his own sake, but he has goodness for all of us to join in. And we can throw ourselves on his mercy and entrust ourselves to him, and we can stay there. I want you to see, above all, that Jesus is worth sticking with and sticking by. And so as we journey our way through the Gospel of Luke, probably over the next several years here and there, my prayer for you is that wherever you are in regards to Jesus, that you will become more and more certain about the truth of who he is, and you'll decide that he is worth following, that he is worth trusting, that he is worth everything, that he offers himself to us, and that that is good news. Good news that we'll spend the rest of this series in which you ought to spend the rest of your life looking into. And let's turn to God now as we consider that. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we do pray along with Luke, that as we journey through his book, that we would grow in the certainty of who he is. And God, we pray that our certainty would not be based on our own knowledge, our own ability to comprehend, but the certainty of who Jesus Christ has presented himself to be. May we see him for who he is, and seeing him for who he is, may we entrust ourselves to him. May we follow him with all that we have. May we make him not just an example, but an object of worship, our Savior and our Lord. May we follow him with all things. May there be no part of our life that is hidden from Jesus but that we would give all things to him and trust all things to him, trust that he will renew all parts of our life when we come 
to him through his grace, and we come in obedience to him. God, I think this morning of the end of the book of Luke, when the men walked with, with Jesus, and they, they didn't recognize him, and he taught them the scriptures, and he shared truth with them, and they still didn't recognize him. But God, when he broke the bread with them, they recognized him, and they knew him. This was their friend. This was their Savior. And God, now as we come to again break bread with our Lord and Savior, would we recognize him and see him for who he is? We pray in his name. Amen. Craig.